Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I am delighted to be with two great friends and uh, friends that I met as a direct result of my conversion to orthodoxy. And uh, today I want to talk to my friends, and I'll introduce them in a second, uh, about why we're Christians, and, and then maybe talk about why we're orthodox Christians as well. Let me say that the privilege of being with Nathan Jacobs and Metropolitan K.P. Yohanan is, is, is quite an extraordinary privilege because sitting here next to me in a red cassock is a man that uh, is perhaps the preeminent voice over, over many, many decades of, of mission. I think it was St. John Chrysostom that said of St. Ignatius of Antioch that he was a soul-seething divine eros. And when I think of my friend, Metropolitan, I think about that very thing, a soul-seething divine eros, a man who, whose heart literally bleeds for those who have not heard uh, the name of Jesus Christ. A lot of uh, Metropolitan KP's work is, is done in what's called the 1040 window, a swath that encompasses maybe 1.6 plus million people, uh, the vast majority of whom have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And Metropolitan has given his life to reaching out to the least of these uh, in that part of the world. And, and that's never stopped him from wanting to extend that reach beyond that, that area of the world, uh, places like sub-Saharan Africa. And Metropolitan K.P. Yohanan also written the, uh, the definitive work on, on mission. 
It's called A Revolution in World Mission, a book that I know you've read. It's impacted your life. It's impacted my life. But it's literally impacted the lives of millions of people, and it's impacted the way in which missions uh, have been performed worldwide. Uh, How the name of Jesus Christ goes out to the world, not just in terms of the proclamation of the gospel, but meeting the needs of people uh, who are so desperate, uh, giving the cup of cold water uh, in the name of Jesus, the piece of bread in the name of Jesus, visiting the, uh, the prisoners, the, the orphans, and the widows, and I want to tell a quick story about this as I'm introducing Metropolitan K.P. Yohanan. I've gone through stage four mantle cell lymphoma. I've just celebrated my my, my fourth year since the day I was told I have stage four mantle cell lymphoma. Um, And when I was going through a transplant uh, a little more than a year ago, I went into a coma. And while I was in that coma, I had no concept of what was going on in this time-space continuum. I came out of the coma after three days, and I was back in my hospital bed, and the one thing that kept going through my mind is, what would Jesus have said to me with respect to my care for the least of these? And shortly after I came out of my coma and and recovered from my transplant, uh, recovered from my cancer by God's grace, by his mercy. I had the opportunity to meet this this extraordinary man and and, and to see his heart for mission, not not just from the outside as a spectator, but getting to know him, his family, his extended family, getting to know the inside-working of the ministry that he founded, uh, GFA World. And I am in awe of the fact that I am with you, not because you are uh, someone that lauds your accomplishments, uh, someone uh, that is braggadocio about how great you are, but someone who is humble, uh, with no pretenses, but just as I said, a soul-seething divine eros. So I am so happy to be at this table with you and have discussions uh, that will impact people around the world. You are able to take some of the most complex matters and communicate them uh, in a way that becomes accessible to all of us. And I think that'll be evidenced in our conversation. On my other side is uh, another dear friend that I met as a result of becoming Orthodox. He stayed in my home um, with an extraordinary son. Maybe he'll tell the story, a son named Bo. Uh, He's an example of someone who has, has reached out to the least of these through adoption. Um, He is brilliant in, 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 in every sense, but again, a humble Christian. He's a scholar in residence of philosophy and religion and the religion 
and the Arts and Contemporary Culture Program. That's right. That's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. <laughs> and it's based in Vanderbilt University Divinity School. Of course, he's lectured and taught at many universities around the country. Um, he has so many credits to uh, his account. Uh, he, he's written many books, uh, at least three very significant books. He has over 30 refereed articles to his credit. A book that caught my attention was The Persistence of the Sacred and Modern Thought, which received the choice gold seal for outstanding academic title. But I actually met a Nathan as a result of a film that he produced uh, titled Becoming Truly Human. And in that film, he talks to nuns, meaning people that have no religious affiliation and their number is growing with vast rapidity in Western culture. It's an extraordinary film. If you haven't watched it, uh, people tuning in to this, uh, this video podcast ought to do that, ought to, ought to look at that, at that film. It's, it's, it's a transformational film because it, isn't, it, it, it is very much in concert with what Metropolitan does. Metropolitan has established churches all over the world, more than 12,000 churches. That 12,000 is a modest number. But those churches meet the needs of people and through meeting the needs of people, earn the right to share the gospel. And I, I think the way you conducted uh, this documentary is emblematic of that. Uh, you weren't simply pounding them with the gospel, but you were in this documentary, letting people see why people have given up on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Powerful, a powerful movie. And I've done many podcasts with Nathan. We've become great friends. He stayed at my home. And uh, so I am delighted to be with these two brothers. I am Hank Hanegraaff. I'm president of the Christian Research Institute. I'm host of the Bible Answer Man broadcast, a nationally syndicated broadcast. I... Um, I do a podcast called Hank Unplugged. Uh, our website is equip.org, and you can find out uh, more about me and our ministry if you don't already know about our ministry uh, by going to equip.org. I don't want to say much more than that about myself. Uh, I want to get right into talking about a couple of things. I want to start out with not talking about why we're Orthodox Christians, because all three of us are, about why we're Christians to begin with. And, you know, when people ask me why I'm a Christian, and I'm going to pose this question to both of you, but when people ask me why I'm a Christian, uh, I always say because Christianity is rooted in faith, it's rooted in evidence, it's historic and evidential. Uh, I'm a Christian because I believe God created the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they proclaim knowledge, no speech or language, where their voice is not heard, their words go out to the ends of the earth. God's eternal power is divine nature, clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. So we have the, the light of creation, and I'm a Christian in part because I believe that God created the universe. I think the evidence in an age of scientific enlightenment is overwhelming for that. 
But I'm also a Christian because God is not just ineffable, unknowable. God has made himself known in incarnation. He's revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Christ demonstrated that he was God through the immutable fact of resurrection. We celebrate that at Pascha. Uh, The Western Church has already celebrated Pascha. The Eastern Church is just about to celebrate Pascha. But when we celebrate Pascha, we're celebrating the capstone in the arch of Christianity that Christ rose from the dead. And that's the earnest of our resurrection as well. I'm also a Christian because I believe that the Bible is divine as opposed to merely human in origin. But apart from all of that is apologetic reasons for why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because Christianity is existentially satisfying. It satisfies me metaphysically. It satisfies me physically. It answers the great questions uh, of humanity. It answers questions like the problem of evil. Um, There are only a few really appropriate responses to the problem of evil. Pantheism which really isn't an appropriate response because in pantheism, all is God and God is all, and therefore there is no distinction between good and evil. Philosophical naturalism uh, also doesn't really believe that there's anything good or anything bad uh, because everything's just molecules in motion. And then there's theism, and theism has a relevant response to the problem of evil, and only Christian theism has a satisfying response. And and so I'm a Christian because Christianity meets the deepest needs of humanity. Um, Let let me toss it to you, uh, Nathan. Um, If I were to ask you or someone were to ask you, why are you a Christian? Mm -hmm. uh, How would you respond to that question? Um, Well, I made a movie about it. And so I I could point him to that. Uh, no, I, and I do go through that journey in becoming truly human. And obviously you have to talk in broad brushstrokes about something as complicated as coming to Christianity. At least for me, it was complicated. I know for some people it's very straightforward. They have a a life-shaking experience and, and that's what they point to. For me, there was a long intellectual road where I had been, you know, raised in a Christian home, but had rejected that. And I went about, the reason I focused on the nuns, right, the, this not being Catholic nuns, right, in a habit or something like that, but uh, people with no religious affiliation. The reason I focused on them in this documentary is because I was one of them. I understood where they were coming from. And when you look at the nuns, one of the things that you notice, and this was certainly true of me, uh, you notice that the, most of them, 90% of them, believe in God or a higher power. So they're not dominantly atheists, they have certain spiritual intuitions, but those intuitions have come in conflict with Christianity as they know it, such that there's a breaking point and there's a disconnect. And that was true of me. Uh, but I never found atheism a satisfying alternative. So, for example, with the problem of evil, that was enormously important to me. I think it's the main proof against theism, against Christianity. But the problem I always saw was the very problems that you had noticed. So if I embrace atheism as the conclusion, and I say, well, there is no God, I think I've actually undercut the basis of talking about real evil. And so 
I've actually, uh, I, I've undermined the very reason I've abandoned God. It's a, it's a self-referentially incoherent position. So I concluded that atheism was not an option. Pantheism, suggesting that somehow God is beyond good and evil, good and evil are illusions. I couldn't embrace that either. Uh, my moral intuitions just said, no, good and evil are very real things. They're palpable features of our experience. So it always forced me back to looking for a solution. But um, deism might offer some explanation, uh, you know, but I, I always had trouble with this idea that God is watching and not intervening. And so that, that was always there. So I had to retain God, but there was this, this puzzle, right? Mm. How, is, how is God real and not intervening? Those sorts of things. Uh, then I would have these, these uh, other intuitions uh, that would come along. I, a big part of what initially actually woke me up to uh, the religious questions in the first place, and I hope nobody's scandalized by this, so I apologize if you are, was actually an LSD trip that I was on. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't one of these experiences that people talk about where they look around and they suddenly see that, you know, all things are connected or something like that. For me, it was the first time I became aware that consciousness is not a material object. Mm -hmm. Now, that might be obvious once you say it. Of course, consciousness isn't an object that you can pick up like that. But that was a new thought for me. And what I realized in retrospect is I essentially intuited uh, Plato, one of Plato's arguments for the immortality of the soul in Phaedo. And I came to the conclusion that consciousness is, is something that is not reducible to my material body, and it's probably going to endure. And suddenly that raised the question of, am I shaping my consciousness? Am I shaping myself in a way that I would want to endure? And this raised, for the first time, a plausible concept of heaven or hell, at least as a subjective reality of the soul, if not as places. Uh, and so, the, so suddenly immortality and the question related to that uh, became sort of a critical feature of my thinking. Um, anyway, you, you fast forward, essentially what, what started to emerge is as I revisited Christianity and I, I could not embrace Western Christianity. I just could not buy into certain aspects of that. And we can talk about details if we want to delve into that. But for this, the purposes of your question, let me just say, uh, I could not fit my spiritual intuitions in that box. Uh, what, I, what I turned to instead was the God of the philosophers. And I embraced a certain form of pantheism, uh, not, not pantheism proper in the sort of all is reducible to God, but what would be called panentheism, mm -hmm. where, the, where God and world are in some ways the world is an extension of God, an extension of the divine organism. And I tried to, in some ways, restrict divine omnipotence to explain the problem of evil. I embraced process philosophy, people like Charles Hartshorn and Alfred North Whitehead, who rejected traditional classical doctrines because of things like the problem of evil or the problem of divine hiddenness. Um, and I essentially constructed a pseudo-Christianity out of the God of the philosophers and these spiritual intuitions. But then at some point, what emerged for me was an encounter with the Eastern Church Fathers. Mm, yep. And for me, this is why I can't actually separate, in my, in my journey, I can't separate the question of being a Christian from being an, an Eastern Orthodox Christian. Because the differences between East and West was the difference between belief and unbelief for me. Mm -hmm. I couldn't embrace the Western understanding. But as I read the Eastern Fathers and I said, this is a Christianity I have never heard of. I don't know what this is. I don't understand it. I became obsessive about understanding it. And the more I started to understand the differences between how the East talks about God, 
how he interacts with the world, how they talk about free will, how they talk about anthropology, humanity. They talk about sacraments, worship, liturgy, all these sorts of things. I realized that every intuition I had, everything I hungered for, everything I longed for that I was trying to, on my own, assemble into some sort of puzzle, they not only addressed, but they addressed in a more satisfying way than I could. It was intellectually satisfying. It was existentially satisfying. Uh, and, and I was persuaded. So uh, with Augustine of Hippo, there's sometimes talk of him having an intellectual conversion and then a spiritual conversion, right? The intellectual conversion comes when he reads the books of certain Platonists, and then the existential conversion is when he reads the life of St. Anthony is sort of laid low by Anthony's piety. And I think there's, there's an aspect of that, too, where I was intellectually persuaded, where I said, this is such a compelling worldview. Yeah. This is the only thing I've found in all of my study of the history of ideas. And believe me, I was not just studying, you know, religion. I, I mean, I was studying Kant, Hegel, all these different systems. I was exploring it all. Um, this was the one that seemed to bring it all together, all my intuitions, all my longings. All and you weren't just facts. studying objectively, you're studying subjectively. Right. Mean, this was this, your quest for truth. This was, right. It's the only reason I became an academic. Yeah. I did not have an interest in becoming a professor. I left, I was pursuing art, right? And I left to study philosophy and religion for one reason, which was to get answers. It yeah. wasn't for a career. Um, and it led through all the degrees and publications and things that you'd mentioned, which are part of that journey. And when I, when I came to that intellectual conclusion, I said, I, I'm so persuaded of this. I, I want it to be true, actually. But there was still that gnawing question of, is it true? And this is where an aspect of what I found persuadable, which I had never heard in a Western context, but I think it's important, is as I came to understand what, what the Eastern fathers were we're saying who Christ is, what he's done for humanity, to humanity, in humanity, and what he offers to us. It's not just a historical fact regarding, you know, the proofs of whether he rose from the dead. Supposedly, he did that in humanity, for humanity, so that there should be other people who end up metamorphosized like he is. And suddenly the lives of saints... Hmm. Suddenly looking into even contemporary saints like Elder Paisios, seeing an unbroken chain of metamorphosized people. And when I say metamorphosized, I don't mean they just became nice or good citizens. I mean, there's something transcendent happening in, this people, in these people. That became a critical evidence to the message, because it's one thing to say, I like, you know, let's pretend I'm, I'm selling you on a diet, right? Oh, there's this great diet, and here's how it works, and I lay out all these, the science about it, and you find it very persuasive. But the question is, has it worked for anybody? And if I can't point to anybody who's done it and it's worked, well, then that's a problem, right? That's, that's an evidential problem. But as I looked at, you know, the lives of people like Elder Paisios, and it wasn't just in books. Right? I, mm. you know, a, mm. a, a dear friend of mine who teaches philosophy at University of Kentucky, you know, one of his good friends who is a priest met Elder Paisios. His entire conversion was one of these miraculous, very bizarre encounters that defies explanation, <clears throat> naturalistic explanation. That became an important proof for whether or not what's being said in this worldview is true. Yeah. 
And when I saw that pattern, I said, I think this is real. I think this is true. Um, now, I'm not a great representative of it, to be truthful. <laughs> um, you've offered a lot of, you've mentioned some of my accomplishments, which... Uh, Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Are really, honestly, and this is not, you know, this is not self-deprecating, it's the honest fact that when I, when I compare, you know, my accomplishments to the life of certain people, <clears throat> even at this table, uh, it's all rubbish in comparison with that. Uh, but nonetheless, from a, an evidential perspective, the fact that these metamorphoses were taking place with regard to humanity was a critical final step in moving from just an intellectually satisfying worldview to something that might actually be real and true and effective for humanity. It's amazing. Hank, this is what you write in your book about, you know, uh, the theosis or, you know, deification. Um, as a matter of fact, I think, of course, I read hundreds and hundreds and thousands of books, I think, on all these subjects. But reading your book was kind of one of those times light went on that salvation is not, you know, for spiritual loss and prayer and then go on with life thinking that you're going to go to heaven. But it's basically the beginning of this... Um, um, inheriting the uh, life of God, as it says in Peter. That is, we are called to partake of his nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like a little boy um, who is one year old. It, it is in a perfect shape. Two hands, two legs, and eyes, and hair, you know, make sound and hear everything. But uh, it will take um, another 15, 20 years for that uh, individual to grow up, to become self-conscious and and make decisions, and then, so <clears throat> the uh, embryo is not the full potential. Yeah. Uh, embryo has the potential in it. So, um, I mean, this was my own journey. Um, you know, I mean, I think I wrote nothing 150 books uh, before I was thrust into the world of terrible darkness of my soul, mm -hmm. trying to figure out. My information, my heart didn't merge. Mm. I knew, I mean, I, I used to tell people I was the best theologian or lawyer God can find to argue for him. Mm. Um, but, you know, my head and my heart didn't, didn't. And that's when, I don't know who it was, advised me to go back and read the uh, ancient fathers of the church and desert mothers, desert fathers. Mm. And surprising enough, they didn't write books. Most of them didn't. It was their disciples who scribbled everything and put it together. And uh, that put me on a journey. Um, you know, and so, I mean, your explanation about, 
And you know, the amazing thing, God is not so worried about <clears throat> you've decided it when you were eight years old or 50 years old, nothing like that, because God is working with our time. Mm-hmm. You know, so he saw you before the world began and he saw you after the world has come to an end. And he see, uh, you know, your journey, but his goal was uh, always that you'll become more and more like uh, his son in, in simple terms. It's no more... You did something to find life, and he found you, and he allowed him to incarnate through your life, which is deification. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, in the Western countries, I'm a little concerned about not telling some stories that I know, because people think I'm spooky or something. And about <laughs> people I, you know, know that really, <clears throat> um, it's not strange, Dr. Nathan, people can read the Bible and read about Elijah and Moses and David and St. Paul, uh, you know, and... Um, I mean, that's only a fraction of the stories. There are millions of them. They have no problem about transfiguration, and they are no problem about, you know, the prophet says, um, um, you know, before the armies, in the, um, the king sent the army to capture him, he could see, and they are talking in the inner chambers, he could hear all this. I mean, these are normal people that knew God. <clears throat> but when we read it, and we go to Hebrew and Greek and mm-hmm. grammar, trying to explain all these things instead of understanding, this is... Um, life we are supposed to enter into, right. uh, not for our sake, but for experiencing. Yes. Uh, I, I wonder if you can elaborate on that a little bit from the perspective of your understanding of the church as the epicenter of the universe. That in missions, you're not about simply clothing and feeding the hungry. Um, and then leaving, you're not even just about converting people in a punctiliar fashion, meaning that they pray a prayer and they receive Jesus Christ, and then off you go, and they're left to fend for themselves. But rather, you are committed in missions in establishing churches because it is within the church that we partake of the Eucharistic bounty that transforms us from one glory to another. It is within the church that we are gymnasized unto godliness, mm-hmm. you know, where we embrace the spiritual disciplines, where we become imitators of Jesus Christ. Um, talk about the significance of the church well, <clears throat> to be the epicenter yeah. of missions. You see... Um, Take the um, event that happened in the life of uh, Theotokos, the mother of our Lord. Uh, She was living as a normal young girl, and here comes the angel and tells her, and um, there you read, she was completely shaken up. What on earth are you talking about? I'm just a teenage girl, I'm not married, and now you're talking about me. I mean, finally, God's mercy and grace. And she said, what all you said... um, um, uh, let it be, um, she responded um, with, not with the logic, it's irrational behavior that said, let it be. And <clears throat> so when we talk about uh, the invisible um, um, action of God within the life of humanity, um, it, the, the church 
um, is not a four-wall building and people gathering in it, but basically uh, this is where the invisible we encounter. Mother Mary will never have a chance to sit and uh, meditate and make a decision about I'm going to get a bargain and, I'm going to, and have... The, no, it was uh, another world interacting with her. So what is a church? Church is the people of God who, um, um, like the circumcision, um, who became part of the Holy Church through the sacrament of baptism, and they are gathering not to hear a priest or a pastor, brilliant scholar, teaching, preaching, and a fantastic music band. No, they are gathering um, around the living Christ. Um, Not only the church is the epicenter of the universe for this, um, God made the earth. You know, Bill Heimer talked about in his thesis, the whole creation was made um, so that he can find a bride for his son. So if that be the case, <clears throat> in Ephesians 4 talks about it is within the church we become, grow up to be his bride. It's very clearly said that. So <clears throat> the church is where we are um, um, interacting with angels and archangels and the saints gone before us. Hebrews talk about that. So worship, um, the the the. You cannot define what we do. here the the Protestant the Western world worship is people howling and singing and dancing and jumping and all those things. But basically, worship is focusing on the one who is sitting on the throne, and that is represented in the Eucharist. And so, a priest this week here, next week he is gone. Nobody cares about it really. I mean, they are they are concerned about the 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 one who is present among them, and. Um, and so, <clears throat> um, you know, I have t- so many stories of, um, that I know in my own life journey that um, people uh, partaking of the Eucharist um, is, is not something we do for ourselves to remember something. This is, a, this is a mystery. And so what happened? We, by faith, allow us... Uh, Jesus told Thomas, now here I am, Thomas. You didn't believe me? Put your finger and see and feel this is. So people who don't understand the mystery of the Eucharist and the worship, the the epicenter of the worship is the Eucharist because you read that in Isaiah chapter 6, also Revelation 4 and 5, the same thing. People say that's Old Testament. And there's no such thing as Old Testament, New Testament. It is the same God, Trinity in the Old Testament, same God in the New Testament. The worship is the same. This is an amazing thing about it. So, but why this is? Because unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you are no part in me. I mean, here we have um, coffee and water and, and look at this. I didn't hang those things like this. Protein. Nathan, this, he's not doing fair. See, now, the truth of the matter is, I am glad you're eating protein. I should think of buying some of it. He only ate bite, I don't know on this. But, you know, this... this when you has, get old, you need all kinds of shortcuts. <laughs> you know, this, Dr. Nathan, this has no meaning uh, if it sits here. But when you eat this, this convert into energy, new cells, new life. The... The Eucharist is not imitating a memory looking at a picture. It is actually 
the way we connect with the invisible for God to pour in his grace to transform us. You know, I used to be very high on discipleship thing. I'm not against discipleship, but I think it's a terrible word. And I'm sure some people fight with me on this thing. Why? <laughs> in Philippians 3, uh, uh, St. Paul said, he said, look at the list I have. I mean, he was, you know, absolutely impeccable in his character, in his behavior. His conscience is clean mm-hmm. and everything. Then he said, I'm lost. Mm-hmm. So, I'm giving it all up because I don't want my own righteousness. When I was a youngster, I was told in discipleship, get up in the morning, five o'clock, one and a half hours you kneel and pray and read the Bible, then this, then this, then this, give you a tithe. I mean, it was worse than the laws of the Old Testament. (laughs) And I did all that and I I lived with this constant struggle of trying to get... You wouldn't believe the millions of times I repented by looking at some girls as a youngster and say, because evil thought was sin. And in the end, I got tired of confessing. I, you know, one time I thought, I wish I could be blind so I don't have to see any girls. <laughs> you know, so, so inside me, in my head, I had the knowledge, Dr. Nathan, but my heart didn't have the energy. I'm weak. And so this life of God is real. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, I can say this. Um, um, you know, I, I, this is a reasonable thing to say about me. People talk all kind of things about me in the books I wrote, this accomplished, all those things. And I don't deny them. I don't say privately or publicly, oh, no, 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 God did it, I'm God's grace. I don't say that. I'm very aware who I am and what I know and my brain. And, uh, but at the same time, I'm keenly aware he put that all in me. Mm-hmm. That is humility. And, but honestly, um, Hank, that, that conclusion didn't happen to me through me processing this. I, I woke up surprised. I'm reacting to this. How do I think about it? You know, some, you know, like I find the worst um, sinner you can imagine, my worst enemy. I find my reaction to him different from 20 years ago, how I thought about it. Now I say, well, he's going to be a saint in 10 years. He's in the making. My suffering is needed for him to become. You see... I didn't do that for me. The life of Christ through partaking of the divine nature changed me. And that is salvation. This reason I think the great falling away going to be from people who memorize the Bible and think they know all the answers. Can, can I piggyback on some of this? Yeah, you know, I... <laughs> This is just a roundtable discussion, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that Metropolitan KP brings up with respect to uh, the Eucharist, uh, I didn't anticipate we'd be talking about this this early in the conversation, yeah, but I think it's really, <laughs> it, it, it's sort of the epicenter of everything. You know, the, um, the notion that KP brings up uh, with respect to eating the pure body of Christ and drinking the precious blood of Christ uh, is that we are then imparted energy. And that energy is not biological energy. Mm-hmm. It's zoetic energy. It is, uh, you know, St. Paul says in Colossians one twenty nine that he proclaims Christ teaching 
with all sincerity and humility, all the precepts of Christ. Mm -hmm. And when he does that, he's energized by all God's energy, which so powerfully energizes him. And so if we are truly to transform the world, we can't do it by might or power or by biological energy, but you have to do it through the energies of God. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk about that. And I was also, I had to say, I was also taken by what you said about the LSD trip, because <laughs> I've often said to people, if you don't believe in the metaphysical, take some LSD and go into the I, woods for a couple I, I, of days. I, should we try that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's not advisable just because uh, you don't know what's going to greet you on the other side. Yeah. For some people, they seem to see something that might seem mm -hmm. like God's energies. Other people like me are greeted by something else. Yeah. I would say, so you, you brought up mystery, and I think, that's, I think that's an important word, an important concept, because, but it's one that's often misunderstood. Right? So people tend to think of mystics, right? That's a unique class of people who go off and fast for a really long time and try to see heavenly visions. And maybe they take some LSD, right? <laughs> um, but, but that's not, or they'll use it as a term that sort of a, lacks intellectual integrity. It's just when I can't give you an answer, I say, well, it's a mystery, right? It's a way of punting on the topic. But it's really neither if you properly understand it. Mm -hmm. If you really look at it the way the Eastern fathers understood it, uh, the term from which we get mystery uh, originates from muin, right, which is a verb to shut. And, and uh, Plato talks about this. He talks about this in the context of mystery cults in, in the ancient world where you'd be initiated into a secret knowledge and you'd have to shut your eyes or shut your mouth to be initiated. And then from this derives the term mustikos, which is the, the mysterious one, right, somebody who's been initiated. And then with Clement of Alexandria... He picks up this concept of mystery, and he specifically uses it to talk about Christians who have been initiated into the knowledge of God. And what Clemens specifically talks about is the fact that the Old Testament is sort of this veiled picture of God. You're seeing something of God, but there's all these cryptic images in there. There's all these types shadows. and metaphors mm. and shadows, and it's hazy. But once you've been initiated and seen that in the light of Christ, now you actually come to understand what those things are, what, who God is. And Origen uses the transfiguration. If you've, you know, obviously you know the icon of the transfiguration, but for anybody who hasn't seen it, right, it's Christ on the mountain radiating light. You see the apostles there, and then you see uh, Moses and Elijah. How Origen of Alexandria interpreted that you know, the, the allegorical or the spiritual reading of it was that, uh, is that Moses and Elijah, uh, representing, you know, the Old Testament scriptures, have no light in themselves until bathed in the light of Christ, right? And then he interprets Christ's garments as the four gospels and so on. And the reason the apostles are there is to show you that once the initiated one's eyes are opened, they can see the full picture now. And of course, that became associated with the church, yep. right? The means by which you are initiated 
the means by which. It wasn't just an intellectual, oh, this is the right reading of the Old Testament or something like that. It was an ontological reality of being initiated and participating in that. So you used an excellent metaphor, which was an embryo, right? It's not full grown. There's, it's tacitly already all that mm-hmm. it is, but it needs to grow up. And you see that in First in John, where it refers to the sperma of God, right? The seed mm-hmm. that is in you that you need to protect and you need to nurture and see grow up. And in, I believe it's preserved by Eusebius, but there's a text in the ancient church that uses the church, refers to the church um, metaphorically as Mary, because in it, in its womb, are gestating little Christs. Mm. Right, who are C.S. Lewis actually it. used that term in mere Christianity, mm-hmm. little Christ, right. yeah. That's right. And so, so within the context of the church, when you look at what mystery really is, it's not punting, it's not something that's unique to people living off in caves. It's anyone who has taken the sacramental means of initiation and entered into a knowledge of God, chosen to participate in the realities that Christ has accomplished in and for humanity. And then that becomes this key element, though, that I think one of the things that gets lost, unless you see this embryo concept that you talked about. We have a tendency, I think, in Western modernist uh, you know, thinking to make knowledge strictly up here, right? It's strictly epistemological, right? It's strictly about, uh, you know, knowing that something's sitting in front of me or knowing that, you know, two plus two equals four, right? Whereas the Eastern fathers recognize that there is a deep ontology, that there are aspects of me I don't know, right? Basil says this when he, he's dealing with uh, certain heretics, the Eunomians, who claim to know you know, not only God, but anything they can define. And he says, I don't even know myself, right? I know Hank to a degree, right? But I don't know all of Hank. I can't peer into him. And I don't even know myself to peer deeply. There's a deep ontology there. And in that, there is a participation in things. There are things that I experience and participate in are part of me that I don't even know are part of me, right? Obviously, you and I both have the experience of not knowing that cancer is at work in our body. But it's unquestionably was there, part of our experience, whether we knew it or not, whether we were aware of it or not. And C.S. Lewis talks about this too in The Problem of Pain when he he talks about the fact that spiritual realities, just because we can't see them and taste them and touch them typically, um, we're often unaware of them. So there are things that interact with us and we just don't realize it. And, And if you take seriously the idea that we exist if we live and move and have our being in God, most of us are unaware of that fact, right? We, we walk around and presume that we, we exist autonomously. But once you recognize that there are these deeper realities that we participate in, things that are there that we don't really, we aren't really aware of, what you move into is this idea that participating in the church, partaking of the sacraments, there are realities there that we begin to have a knowledge of God that is deeper than just being aware of God. And you see this especially, you brought up by son Bojdar. I think he's a, he's a good example of this. When you baptize an infant, right, if you take seriously what Paul says about baptism and what it does, that this person has been buried and raised with Christ, there is an ontological reality of participation there. Mm that the infant has no concept of Mm. and won't have a concept of for years. And maybe they grow up and at some point they come to understand it and they're like, oh, now I know God. But 
even that, it, 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 it's a way of making knowledge merely cognitive as opposed to making it an ontological reality. My son Bojadar is, I think, an excellent illustration of this. He's developmentally delayed, right? We adopted him uh, when he was seven, and he was severely damaged because of neglect in the orphanage, and he has permanent damage from that. I don't know what Bojadar understands. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. About, you know, the faith once given over to the saints. I don't know. It's not rationally. Yeah, I don't know what he's aware of about it. But what I do know is that if I take seriously Paul's statements about baptism, if I take seriously John's statements about you having a charismata, a chris, uh, an anointing from the Holy One, mm-hmm. right? if I take seriously what Christ says about unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me, and what that means on the, on the flip side of actually having that life in you, I can't deny without rejecting all of those claims, I can't deny that Bojdar knows God on a deep ontological level, whether he's aware of it, whether he propositionally understands it or not. And I think that's a critical feature to understanding that all of Christianity is based on a mystical experience. The liturgy itself is a mystical experience, not in the sense that we go off in a cave and we, we starve ourselves or, or try to pursue visions, but in the sense that we recognize that there are ontological realities promised to us here of participating in uh, when we enter into it. I, I want to dive into that a little more because um, e- either one of you, all three of us, I mean, when we think of um, the difference between Eastern and Western theology, I think you both have sort of made that cleavage in a sense by saying that in in Western theology, the emphasis, at least, uh, is in knowing, in understanding, in explaining. So you take the Eucharist, and um, with Roman Catholicism, for example, you say, well, this is transubstantiation going on. They have the Eastern Church saying... You know, this is, to use, ironically, a Latin phrase, this is the mysterium tremendum et fiscinans. It's the mystery that causes us to tremble and yet attracts us. So it's a mystery. It's, it's, it, 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 it's not something that I can comprehend, but it is something that I can experience. So it's not just a head full of knowledge and a body unable to fend off sin, but it's it's experiencing Christ such that we can become his imitators, not in our own might or power, but 
but by his spirit. So this this cleavage between uh, uh, knowledge, which which um, which is important, but I, I wrote a book called "Truth Matters, But Life Matters More." Uh, but but between knowledge and the experience, the experience of life. Um, but I also want to park on this subject that both of you have alluded to, and that is the subject of baptism. They, uh, that, that needs to be unpacked further because in, in much of Western theology, particularly after the Reformation, with the advent of men like Huldrych Swingley, a baptism became something that we do for God, as opposed to something that God mm. does sacramentally in us, um, you know, uh, uh, one of one of my favorite uh, Orthodox priests, uh, Father Josiah Trenum, um, uh, once said that in baptism, you are forgiven. Let's see if I quote him correctly: "You are forgiven, you're washed, you're cleansed, you're united to Christ." You're incorporated in the church, and your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. So through baptism, something transformational happens sacramentally. The sacramental view of baptism has been largely lost amid debates with respect to justification. Um, all kinds of uh, all kinds of debates and conflicts and so forth between the Catholics and the Protestants. Uh, uh, but amidst all of that, we've lost this sense of what bap- the significance of baptism from a sacramental standpoint. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Hang, I think this all goes back to like this coronavirus thing, you know, just unbelievable crisis the world has you know, plunged into. Um, and I think we all agree, normal people agree, God did not do this thing. Satan is the one, you know, St. John chapter 10, verse 10, that that's, that's his whole purpose to destroy humanity. Whatever, if, if God didn't stop him uh, from going any further, he would have killed Job instantly. And so it's God's mercy that, you know, whatever we are, be able to survive with that. But here's the thing. What do we know about Satan, who is the enemy of God and everything of God? It is in the Garden of Eden. That is um, saying, um, you know, don't be so stupid, Eve. Um, you You can know what's right and wrong. The innocence was gone by choosing right or wrong. Throughout the uh, history of the church, um, even before that, you know, remember 300 years before Christ was born, there was a group of people called Pharisees. And they were possibly the most devout, godly, um, holy people walking on earth in terms of inner life, um, uprightness, and the external behavior. But by the time it came 300 years later in Jesus' time, they crucified Christ. Yet they were the expert in knowledge of the Bible to the extent they will write commentaries that beyond your imagination, and you know that. And Jesus said, well, you travel 
uh, crossing seas to convert people uh, because you believe in it. You know the Bible uh, by heart and teach, but you are going to hell. The reason is the, the knowledge only points out me, the living word, and you don't want me. And so it's a divorce taking place. So Christianity, the same thing happened. That is, especially the Protestant world, I, I, I don't like to use the word because people don't like me, but the truth of the matter is Eucharist or baptism, all these things, we decided, as C.S. Lewis said, God is now in the dark. That is, God is in the witness stand, and we decide what is right and what is wrong. So, I mean, the Catholic people saying transubstantiation, really, I mean, I read through their canon law, I don't know how many times. Honestly, it was um, a helpless, hopeless attempt to explain to simple people, this is serious, and they should not have done this. They should have said it's a mystery. It is a mystery. Okay, I asked some people who are radical, fundamentally evangelical, whatever, please tell me, how do you get saved? The, the term they use. Mm-hmm. How do you get born again? The term they use. You know, they will quote Bible verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By faith we are saved, not by works and all those things. Please tell me, what is this faith? Where do you get that from? And so you are being spared from going to eternal lake of fire, hell, wherever we preach about for billions and timeless eternity just by you saying a few words. And um, so how, how do you understand that? Logic doesn't make any sense here. So the attempt of humanity is to explain baptism or Eucharist, any of these mysteries in human terms. And this reason why Paul said, the mind of man is always working in enmity with God. It cannot comprehend. Unless, unless we are willing to enter into the mystery of saying, I don't know this, but it is real. You know, I have a friend that I know very, very well. Um, um, got his highest education in theology and, and all these things, you know, the Western theology. And um, uh, he got um, convinced that he did not know God after all his degrees. And that drove him to the way of the um, fathers of the faith, Orthodox faith, and he began to understand, learn about these things. But, and one day he was conducting the Holy Communion and um, um, he tells me, um, it is like, you know, C.S. Lewis book, Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. These kids are gone for hundreds of years, but they come back. Mm-hmm. It is like they're in the same railway station. Mm-hmm. There's a harder dimension. And this guy, as he was raising the, the, the chalice and the pattern, you know, to, 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 uh, in sand, all of a sudden, the time stood still. His eyes opened and he's looking at um, beings, angels, and people. Some people he recognized. The whole um, altar area filled with um, uh, different uh, atmosphere and presence and beings. And um, he tells me he almost fell dead. And it took just a millionth of a second. It was like eternity. And I think God did that for him. Because, you know, he tells me here so many books, so many things that this is true according to the Hebrews, but he never could understand it. And so when we say Eucharist, it is, um, 
you know, like I, I use illustration, you know, um, Kronos is time by Greek's explanation. It is a river flowing never to end continually in the time that God made for us. But there is another word for time also, kairos. That is the event that happens in the present immediate moment. So Jesus died on the cross in the river of time, but in a particular time. But that particular time is part of the uh, river of time. So um, when the sacrament is offered, the, the, um, the, 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 the Eucharist, actually this eternal sacrifice, therefore it is not Jesus crucified every Sunday. That is eternal. It continues never to end. That Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. The reality of Christ dying for me on the cross, I can be saved. So um, this is a timeless reality. When people realize that, that when Jesus rose from the dead and he said, do this in remembrance of me and all that, and, and how he described that thing, it was not just looking at the photograph thing. It is much more, you know, um, real when you understand that. And the, the Western mind want to have their knowledge satisfy them about this thing I'm doing, the logic. But faith is beyond logic. It, it doesn't, uh, the sick man comes there, laying there, and Jesus' first word is, your sins are forgiven. And the people say, this is stupid. And the guy is sick, you know. And so you see, the Western mind desperately want to explain God. That's the reason all these preachers, you know, for 1,500 years, there was no pulpit in the church. It was the, the altar table. And the baptism, the same thing, which I, you know, I'm, you know, there was a time I preached unless, you know, you believe and be baptized, you are damned. And I, I honestly feel sad about those days that I didn't understand it. And baptism is an act we do for God to open his grace into us. This is, he is the one who makes the covenant. It is not a contract. You know, he's, so, but once we, people understand this, I'm telling you, a lot of people are going to ask the question, am I going to heaven? This is, I mean, salvation is a very, know, redemption is a very serious question. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the, this is, um, that's the reason I am recommending everybody to read Hank Hanegraaff's books, Truth Matters and Life Matters More. And of course, I'm promoting the book so much and he's not still giving you any money for it either. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, I want to pick up on something that you said with respect to um, the Chronicles of Narnia, because you've brought this up many times in conversations privately and, and, and some public conversations as well. Uh, you, you talk about the significance of, um, of getting into the wardrobe mm-hmm. and then going from the wardrobe into Narnia. The reason I bring this up is is that we are wretched flatlanders. Mm. You know, mm. there, there's a world outside us that is just waiting to be explored. I kind of want to pick up on that a little bit, but I also want to pick up on this. Uh, we're talking about Western and Eastern theology and so forth, and I I, I, I don't think we want to become dichotomaniacs, mm. you know, where we're making false dichotomies. Uh, between Western and Eastern mind and so forth. The, it, oftentimes it's a matter of emphasis, right? 
Um, but, but, but I do think that there's a fundamental issue here, and that issue is orthodox anthropology. Um, so in, in Western theology, the arch typically extends from fall of Adam to redemption, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Um, in Eastern uh, orthodoxy, the arch certainly acknowledges the reality and the beauty and the wonder and the mystery and the power of, of, of redemption in Jesus Christ, but the arch extends from creation to deification. Mm. And, and, and to explain that in simple terms, one of my favorite, and I think yours as well, Nathan, uh, favorite theologian, because um, you love the Russian theologians, right. um, Vladimir Lasky, yeah. who, who, who said that after the fall, the history of humanity is the history of shipwreck awaiting rescue. But, he said, the port of salvation is not the goal. Right. The goal is for the rescue mm. to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. So it's not just to be saved as significant, and I don't even want to use the word just, I just did, but... Um, it's not only uh, to be saved. If you are in a boat wreck mm -hmm. or if you have the Titanic going down and you're saved in the midst of the raging waters of the ocean, you're thankful in the port of salvation, but you don't want to stay there. You want to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. And that's the emphasis, I think, that all of us are driving at mm -hmm. in this conversation, the emphasis on continuing on a journey, mm -hmm. which ultimately means that we experience fellowship in the Holy Trinity, the very thing that we were created for. Mm -hmm. So I'll pick up on, uh, on anthropology here since you brought it up, right, the, the critical feature of anthropology, because I think it ties into how we view ourselves, how we view the work of Christ, how we view the sacraments, and how we do, view the flow of history. Um, and so I'll try to concisely talk about all those things. <laughs> Knowing you, it will not be concise, but it will be no, profound, no. <laughs> and it will be important. Okay. So... Um, I won't spend too much time on the Western view, but suffice it to say that in the West you do have a nature-grace divide that emerges thanks to uh, Augustine and the Pelagian dispute. And the result is you have a tendency to see nature as one thing that has sort of inherent inability to be pleasing to God, and he needs this sort of supernatural imposition to come in that we call grace uh, that fixes it, makes it capable of doing things that are meritorious or pleasing to God. One of the things that stood out to me so much when I started reading the Eastern Fathers was how different their anthropology was. Because that anthropology had always struck me as, I, I, I fear this will be too strong, but honestly, this is, this is the honest way it struck me as, as a nun, you know, studying theology. It's, it, it struck me as morally repugnant. Because it carried things like, well, unbaptized infants are damned, and 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 you know these these ramifications that I think any honest person looked at and said, well, that violates basic moral intuitions of justice and love, um, and simply saying pietistically, well, it's God, you, you just trust Him, is anything but satisfying. But when I looked at the Eastern Fathers and their anthropology, 
I saw a wildly different picture of humanity. Um, I found that, you know, a, a critical feature of how they viewed humanity is the idea that we're the image of God, right? That we are an icon of God. And sitting in the background of this concept of icon, uh, there are there's two different types of images. Plato talks about two different types of images. False images like shadows, where they give you a certain representation of a thing, but they're non-substantive, right? They're negations of light. Hmm. Versus true images, like a reflection. And he points out that a reflection actually is something. It's substantive. And that something, when you define it, when you say, well, what is a reflection? There's no way to define it without being referential. It is a reflection of you know, fill in the blank. And for that reason, as part of just the very nature of what it is, it cannot be excised from its archetype. Because what it is, is an image of that thing. That thing is part of its definition. There's a, not bilateral, but unilateral reliance of image upon archetype. And so when they look at humanity and they see Scripture talking about man as an icon of God. What they suggest is actually what you find in the Eastern Fathers, is that it is an essential property, an inextricable property of us, that we are images of our divine archetype. You can bury that, you can suppress it, you can tarnish it, you can pretend it's not there, but there's no getting rid of it. And that becomes a profoundly different view of humanity. You know, as you'd said, you know, when you look at somebody who you say, well, this is my enemy, but you, you now say to yourself, well, they might be a saint in 10 years. It's because there's no getting rid of that possibility. That's what they're made mm-hmm. for, and that's, that's woven into their ontology. And when you look at this then in the context of the work of Christ and how they talk about the work of Christ, it's, again, it's not a supernatural imposition that comes in. Rather, the way they talk about the work of Christ is Christ takes on, the second person of the Trinity, the creator God himself, right, takes on the fallen, corrupted creature in order to heal it and restore it from within. Gregory of Nyssa uses uh, Christ's parable where he talks about the lost coin. And he suggests that the house in that parable is humanity. And then this coin gets lost in the house, and it needs to be cleaned out. And he suggests that the clutter are the passions, right? All those things mm. that cloud and bury and tarnish the icon of God. And the coin that's lost is the icon, but it's still in the house. And Christ is the one who comes in and cleans the house and finds the coin and then celebrates that it's been restored. And you see this also come through in people like St. Anthony, who when he talks about the human soul, he says it's been twisted, it's been tarnished, but if you just untwist it, mm it does what it's supposed to do, which is to take on the attributes of its archetype, just like an image, right? Just like a mirror might be tarnished or warped. But if you unwarp it, if you clean it, it now again reflects the attributes of its archetype. It's like the healing of a sickness. That's right. And so that's, that's central to what humanity is and what we're supposed to do. Now, I think where this ties into the long view of history, what's critical to recognize is they draw a distinction in looking at Genesis, right, where God says, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness, and then he makes man in his own image, and likeness isn't repeated. And they think that's important. 
And why is it important? It's important because when you're talking about self-determining free creatures, right? That's, that's how they, they use the term freedom, right? It's self-determining. Uh, when you're talking about something that's self-determining, it has to participate in its own creation. God can't make a completed human at the outset without its synergistic, mm. right? Without mm. its cooperation. And so when you look at them in that context, you realize that the making of the, the creation is not complete in Genesis. We're still in the creation narrative, which is why they talk about the eighth day of creation that we await, because we're still in the creation story itself. And we'll always be. Well, it, this, is, this is the part where what we look at here, what, this is the long view that Lasky talks about, where, where in some ways recognizing that we're very early in the narrative. Yeah. And I found this to be critically important in two areas that we've already brought up. One was the problem of evil. I hinted at the problem of divine hiddenness. And I think this is critical to both of those problems because on the one hand, looking at the problem of evil has a very present view of reality. This is just the way the world is supposed to be. The story is just what I see. As opposed to taking the long view and saying, well, what if the story, what if we're in the very, what if we're in the prelude of the story, right? Uh, Then, you know, it's hard to assess these sorts of things. The other, and so, so the long view of that redemption story, the long view of us being in the creative narrative that has, you know, ways to go, um, the long view of saying that God began creating, we have to participate. We, dis, we derailed the creation process, and the creator God himself entered into it in order to heal the process and now invites us to continue the creation process and enter into that, completing our making. Um, that changes how that changes the lenses through which you look at the world, through which you look at corruption, evil, death, and so on. But the other aspect of this, which is so critical, is the problem of divine hiddenness, right? I, you had shared a story the other night when you were talking about seeing a child on the side of the road, you know, mm. nursing off of a, a female dog, yeah. right? And you had said, if this, this child has a guardian angel, where is it, right? Like, how, how, where is God in this? Um, and similarly, when reading, I was reading your book, um, Our Orthodox Moment. Our Orthodox Moment, right? And you talk about uh, you talk about uh, the uh, the the disaster, right? That that hit, and you talked about your father's response to this. You, you remember the story I'm referring to? Um, the the massive flood was it a typhoon? I want to mm-hmm. say. Um, and you talked about seeing all the dead people, you know, who had, from from that tragedy. There's something palpably, palpable about looking at that and saying, where is God? But one of the things we begin to recognize when we recognize that um, we as creatures are supposed to be energized by God, we're supposed to participate in God, we're supposed to be conduits for God, is that it opens up this, this door of recognizing, well, we make a mistake if we look for God in between things, Right? I say, well, I'm looking for God, so I don't look at Hank, I don't look at you, I look for God to show up in this empty space right here, something like that. As opposed to recognizing that the world as it's meant to be is a world where what I see energized by God and the glory of God is palpably present there and God is not distant at all because I see the energy of God. I see God himself and that's the way the world's supposed to be. But on the flip side of that, 
What that means is that we truthfully disrupt mm. God's presence in the world when we resist it. And that's a critical feature also of how we look at the hiddenness of God. Because the question that I think is always critical when looking at some of these, these tragedies is saying two questions. One, where do I see the devil? Mm. Right? And you brought this up earlier. The second is, where do I see God? And in the story that you shared, it was very easy to see the devil and all the dead people and all the weeping and all the tragedy. But in your story that you shared, it was also clear where God was. In your father, who fasted and prayed and stayed on his knees for days, weeping over the loss of that life. In your father, that's where you saw God. Right? And that's, that's, I think, the thing that we often miss. We're always looking mm. for God in between things mm. as opposed to recognizing all of us are participating in something, whether we know it or not. And it's an important question to ask, what am I participating in? Mm. Where do I see the devil at work? Where do I see God at work? And not looking always in between things, but in the agents. I don't really want to lose this, uh, this, 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 um, this, th- this important issue that we're, we're grappling with here. Um, anthropology. Um, you know, Ephraim the Syrian talks about how paradise was created as a liminal space, uh, a space in the created universe for divine and human interaction. And he pictures paradise not as a flat land, but likened to the mountains of Zion. And he sees the tree of life at the apex of the mountain with the Shekinah glory of God and the tree of knowledge halfway up the mountain. And Adam and Eve, they stop halfway up the mountain and they want to become God's through their own prerogatives, on their own, on their own terms. So they buy into the seductive hiss of Satan. You will be like God. But Adam and Eve were, were created in this narrative. They were created to continue ascending the paradisical mountain to the mountain peak and forever partake of the tree of life. And forever, you're talking about this continuum Uh, not only in this life, but in the life to come, forever partake of the tree of life and forever ascending more and more Mm -hmm. into God-likeness, becoming more and more like God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that never ends, doesn't even end at our death, Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't end in the new heavens and the new earth, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband, never ends because God is ineffable. He's unknowable. And so forever we will be moving towards knowing God more intimately, but that's an inexhaustible thing, just as the universe seems to be inexhaustible. Uh, We can never come to an end of exploring the universe. And if we could, God could create new universes for us to explore. The point being that the idea is to partake of the Eucharistic bounty and become godlike. So we're created as icons of God, but we're also created to becoming more and more like God, um, not in his essence. Uh, we, We can never 
attain to identity of essence. But going back to what KP was talking about earlier, by partaking of the Eucharist, we are partaking of the tree of life that was originally at the apex of the Edenic, uh, Edenic garden, you know, with the Shekinah glory of God. We're partaking of the tree of life. So in essence, I, I usually try to explain it this way, that there are three trees, uh, there's the tree that you find in the Edenic garden, the tree of life, with the Shekinah glory of God. Adam and Eve were to partake of the tree of life, not to partake of the tree of knowledge. Uh, and if they had partaken of the tree of life, they would not have been forbidden the tree of knowledge. That would have been ultimately accessible to them as well. But they were to partake of the tree of life, but they sinned, they were cast out of the garden, in Revelation chapter 21, or 22, I should say, we also read of a garden. It's the eternal garden. And in the eternal garden, we see the tree of life again. You know, the angel shows John the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will they be cursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the... You know the passage. It's the last passage in the Bible, a quintessential passage in the Bible. So you have the tree of life in the Edenic garden. You have the tree of life in the eternal garden, but on the fulcrum of history, stands a tree of life. And that tree of life is the cross. And on that cross, mm. you have you have the medicine of immortality allowing us to forever live in Christ. So in the present, we can partake of the Eucharistic bounty that changes us, as Paul puts it, as a beautiful metaphor, from one glory to another. So that this is, this is the beauty of what we're talking about that I don't want people to lose. I mean, we're not just talking in academic terms here. We're talking about a beauty of a faith when we're talking about the Eastern worldview and Eastern that we're talking about the beauty of a faith in which you don't simply pray a prayer and get a ticket to get into heaven and a ticket to stay out of hell, but you, you get something much more beautiful than that. You get a progression, not just a point in time, and then you continue to live like baptized secular humanists, but you, 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 you have a progression. You keep progressing from one glory to another, and that progression never ends. And that progression is what we're created for, fellowship in the Holy Trinity. Uh, that's, I, I suppose, if there's something that I have a vested interest in in this discussion is, is, is that very thing, people understanding through... Your lens, your lens, my lens, people understanding that there's more than a punctiliar salvation. I'm not denying that there's a point in time where you're baptized. I'm not denying that there's a, a point in time where you say Jesus is Lord. I'm not denying any of that. But I'm saying that there's more. Hank, and I want to discuss that yeah, more. One of the things... You know, I, you know, I mean, like all of us, I think, keep 
thinking and thinking. Sometimes I sit six, seven hours doing nothing but just thinking. And one of the, you know, thing, I, I go back to this thing that is <clears throat> one of the greatest deception Lucifer and billions of demons put on humanity um, in history is making the Bible the uh, means of salvation and redemption. That is, it is, the, the, it, it ends in itself, not a means. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, Jesus is told us the eternal word, the word of the Father, capital um, W-O-R-D. And he became flesh and dwelt among us. And there are people who just study and read and memorize all these things like the Pharisees and obey whatever it says, like the Ten Commandments. Better watch it, Kay, because that's what I've been doing all my life. <laughs> and, but Jesus, you know, when Abraham, I mean, he, he left billions behind and walked obeying God and everything, and he went through all this crisis and everything. Finally, God tells him, I'm listening to Genesis now, by the way, on the tape, when I walk. And there comes a, that verse in 22, I think. It says, Abraham, your son, the one you love, Isaac, offer him um, as a sacrifice. And I, I, honestly, I can't even imagine he, would, he did that, but he, he took the boy to be sacrificed and he raised the knife. And then the angel calls out, Abraham, Abraham. The amazing, the quality of Abraham's heart. If I were him, I say, I don't want to talk to you. You already killed my son. Here it is. But you know, such a tender heart he had in obedience. And he and and the angel said, Don't don't touch the boy. Then the next statement, now I know that you fear God. He don't say, now I know you obey God, now you sacrifice everything, you are the greatest preacher in the world, you built the greatest thing in the world. No, now you fear God. Mm-hmm. The, the, the scripture should lead us to experience God, not to explain God. The Eucharist and, and Christ alive, the, the mystery of it is for I don't understand it. That's a that's a that's my brain get tired of it. So, what did Jesus say? Unless you convert and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom. That is innocence. That means I don't understand, but I believe it. And this is the reason why I think our Catholic brothers and sisters made the mistake of trying to explain it. But the truth is, the 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 life of the living Christ. We abiding in the tree and he in us. And it, so salvation and redemption, reconciliation, is like somebody who got sin. I mean, we got a hospital, medical college, one of the best in the world, I think. People come there sick, um, Nathan, and if they say, give me an injection and I will go home tomorrow, the doctors will say, you are stupid. You're going to die. You had to stay here three months. Because you've been sick for 30 years now, at least. You, so the same way, salvation for a lot of people in the, in, in the world today, or oh, I stood up and said four words and somebody dunked him in the water and he's, my honestly, the most sincere, I'm not trying to promote any particular religion or anything, but I'm very worried about the Christianity that's going to be the greatest falling away because they really don't have the real 
work of God in them. They think they are, but they are not. And so the transformation of our life is like somebody who is sick. I mean, um, the humanity is sick and we still have the image of God in us. And what we need is healing. And the healing only comes from the medicine, the blood of the Lord Jesus, the antidote. You know, and once it's we, the antidote to death. Is, is, yeah, is, is, exactly. Yeah. And so we are changed by that. So people can say, "Well, you know, you're promoting this. You, know, you eat this and drink this, and you're going to be no." That that actually is an acknowledgement, like you said, participating. Mm-hmm. So His grace, and He's the one who began this good work and who will complete it. Mm-hmm. Even the faith we have to believe this is given as a gift. But there's a Christianity that said, I, I, I didn't want to believe anything unless I understand it. Mm-hmm. And they make their own doctrines. And I think uh, it, this reason I keep telling my brother and friend, Hang Hanagrav, we need to do a movie on um, Eucharist. And now he put all the blame on you. Oh, wow. And he, he said, uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Nathan is the one. Yeah, yeah so... Um, yeah, I mean, we can pick up on this uh, this 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 whole um, this whole issue of um, the Eucharist. I mean, it, it, on the one hand, I mean, I, it, it's the title of my my book is not unique to me. It was given to me by um, a dear friend, Elijah Wajaya, who 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 I I talked about. Truth matters. I gave him a bracelet that says "Truth matters." And he handed it back to me. He says, "I think I think life matters more." Mm-hmm. And but but I, I, I but he never said truth doesn't matter. Sure. He said yeah. life yeah. matters Absolutely. more. And and and, and I, I I suppose we only have about uh, five or so minutes left in 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 this segment. We'll do many more, I'm sure. But um, but I, I want to talk about. The, the the fact that we don't want to be dichotomaniacs. Um, you know, the, I, I think about Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas had a Eucharistic experience. I think it was 1273. Um, he had a Eucharistic experience. He had tried to codify all of wisdom, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the disciplines that you've been uh, investing your life in. And then he had this Eucharistic experience in a chapel, and he said to his secretary, who wanted him to continue writing. He said, I cannot write anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything that I've written appears to me as just mm-hmm. just dust or rubbish. Mm-hmm. Or I, f- I forget the metaphor that he used. But So I, 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 I want to so end this. In the, so much straw, yeah. So I, I want to end this segment by simply having you uh, make clear to everyone that might be listening in that we're not trying to make a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I would, I would like us to flesh out at some point more this doctrine of the energies. You, t- mm. you touched on it, yeah. right? Kicked it over to me. I got sidetracked with a very long other topic. Uh, but I think, I think we need to talk about that more transparently. But let me just say by way of... Say, say one more time exactly what you, we're going to be talking about. We'll talk more about the divine energies yeah. the, okay. and, and what that means, what yeah. those are, yeah. what it means to participate in those uh, as we move on. But I would just say this. By way of summary, one of the things that I discovered when reading the Eastern Church Fathers was their understanding of 
Christianity primarily is an opportunity to be metamorphosized through partaking of the divine nature, right? Mm. That's what Peter mm. says, right? The partaking of the divine nature. It was such an alien concept to me in a Western framework um, that it, it drew me in. I had to understand what was going on. Now, there's no doubt that in the West, there are doctrines of participation, but as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, there is something that's quite literally lost in translation. Conceptually, there are things that fall out of the sort of Latin vocabulary as things move on. And so, so it's not so much that the West has you know, no understanding of participation or something like that, but it ends up um, in some ways missing components, critical components that you find in the East, and there ends up being these other emphases on justification and those sorts of disputes. But I think the critical thing to recognize is that for the Eastern Fathers, the primary question, when you ask, what, what if we were to just ask in a very simple way, what is the Christian religion, right? What is the hope of Christianity? The answer is really, in a nutshell, and this is what I, I learned from Athanasius and the Cappadocians, that any creature, any creature, by virtue of being a creature, this is what comes out in the Arian dispute, is susceptible to corruptibility. Even if it's not corrupt, it's susceptible to corruptibility. And the thing that God offers to all of creation, all creatures, the thing that we are all created for is to participate in the only incorruptible nature that exists, which is God's own. That's the only hope for creatures, fallen or unfallen, to ever have a type of life that transcends bios, as you said, the distinction between biological life and Zoe. And that was plan A from the start, fall or no fall. That was the hope of creatures, to participate, to partake of, the divine life. And it's that divine life that we participate in in ever-increasing degrees. What you said, from glory to glory, to quote St. Paul, or to quote Lewis, ever onward and upward, mm. right? That it's a participation. And the reason it's in eternal, and we can talk about this, is that eternity isn't just, in the way the Eastern Fathers talk, it's not just... Um, whatever you get when you step outside of time, right? Like God's eternal and we're not. It is a divine energy. Hmm. Let, let, let me say something real quickly because we're going to continue this yeah. th this conversation. We're out of time for, for, for right now, so we're up against the clock for, for, for just a moment. We're going to come back and continue the conversation. But I, I want to say to people listening in that we, we're— we're having this conversation not to pontificate, mm -hmm. uh, but to engage people in this conversation so that you will have your own conversations uh, with family members and friends. Um, you know, we're learning from one another. All of us uh, are sitting at this table because we, we've invested a great deal of our, our lives in talking about and experiencing uh, the divine energies of God. Um, when we come back, I, I, I do want to talk about divine energies. Uh, I hope you uh, listening into us will continue the conversation on your own, and uh, we're going to have further conversations. But we want to talk about divine energies when we come back, as Nathan said, because, you know, this is— 
this is an incredibly important topic to distinguish between the divine energies and the essence of God um, and how those divine energies penetrate the created realm, God being manifest in each one of those energies. And those energies we can participate in and those energies, not in an impersonal sense, but those energies really do change us in a palpable, in a tangible way. And when you grasp this subject, which we're going to expand on, it will absolutely rewire your circuits. Gotta leave it at that. <laughs> 